this episode, we are joined by Dr. Clifton Evers. Clifton is a member of the Media, Culture, Heritage Unit at Newcastle University. He joins us to discuss mobile video ethnography and his use of GoPro cameras to better capture and understand affects, emotion, and masculinity through the study of surfing. Clifton's chapter on this topic can be found in the recently published edited volume, Researching Embodied Sport, Exploring Movement Cultures. talk about mobile video ethnography. This is a method that a lot of people might not be familiar with, so I'm wondering if you were to introduce this method to an undergraduate class who had never heard of it before, how would you go about describing it? I'd basically say that there's your normal classic video ethnography, which is taking uh, footage out in the field, and it has a long history, going back uh, with, particularly with anthropology. But mobile video ethnography is sort of taking the footage while on the move, I guess, and it's sort of with previous technologies, the way cameras were, that was, wasn't an easy thing to do. But increasingly with, the, with technological development, we've got cameras which we can take into new places, um, attached to new equipment and uh, gather footage that was difficult to gather before. Let's use your recent research, and you've been working on surfing, affect, and masculinity as a way to understand how this method works or what it looks like. So what were your research questions, or what were you trying to get at? What topic were you looking at with this project? The research began in Australia. I was, uh, I began doing research into masculinity in Australia, and in Australia it takes a particular form, sort of, sort of stoic, unemotional, strong, these very classic tropes of masculinity. And I knew this just wasn't how my mates were. <laughs> uh, they liked to put on that front, but um, when you went, say, surfing with them or participated in sport with them, it was a very emotional, embodied and an effective experience, and they'd express this in particular ways. And this would lead into other conversations, be it about relationships, their health, uh, their family life, uh, their relationships with each other, etc. So I want, my key question became what roles do emotions and effects play in the lives of men and how they make sense of those lives? And that included spatially, materially, socially, politically and culturally. And then I wanted to know if I could work through those emotions and effects with those men, how would that reorientate how we understand masculinity and a politics of masculinity that didn't sort of get bound up with sort of trying to pin down a type of masculinity or masculinities, because people like to say there's plural types of masculinities. How could that complexity and movement that, that is emotion and effect open up creative ways of understanding masculinity and help us identify the movement that's involved, involved the adaptability of masculinity? How do you go about researching that topic? And I'm, I'm really interested in how you drew on traditional models of video ethnography, but then also made your own modifications or advances. All right. Well, I, first of all, I uh, started with a very classic approach. I said to myself, I wasn't very experienced. <laughs> I came out of my undergraduate, went into, in Australia, we have a master system, which is sort of 
And then I went into that and I said, I'm just going to do some interviews with some of the men I know. Uh, I'm going to do some focus groups. But I'll be creative and I'll do it in settings that they're familiar with. So I'll do it in the car parks at the beach, mm-hmm. at the beach, in the play, in, in, at the surf clubs, etc. Of course, this was an abject failure <laughs> because they're just not going to talk about what their bodies were going through, what their emotional state was at a particular point in time. These are not conversations that they were going to have especially with the other, with the other guys present. So you were trying to ask the questions about emotions and experience in that kind of group setting? Yeah, and of course it was just I mean sometimes I would get something out of it more by paying attention to what their bodies were doing and and the tone of the conversation, but more often than not it was just silence. But then I also was heavily uh, invested in feminist theory. Um, and when you read feminist theory and political activism and feminism, people putting putting their bodies on the line here and they're riding through their embodied experiences, their own bodies. And I said, there's something here. There's a starting point here. And so I started to do research through my body, paying attention to what I was feeling and what I was experiencing, and then speaking to different some of the guys and then comparing one-on-one about what they saying, oh, could you confirm this? What do you think of this? And they were a bit more forthcoming because I was sort of letting my own guard down as a researcher. So I used my own body as a research tool. Then I saw Tracy Moffat's Heaven. Have you ever seen this film? No, I haven't. Tracy Moffat is an Indigenous artist from Australia and she made a film about Australian surface and basically she flipped the gaze. She took a handheld camera and she starts the footage shooting them changing on the street into and out of their wetsuits. She starts from a long way away and slowly she interferes and gets closer and closer and closer until she's tearing the towels off them. And this is all done without planning. Yeah. Right? She totally gets involved. And it just altered the whole dynamic and conversations would emerge. Uh, the camera was playing its role. She was playing with the power dynamics and there was a sort of creative process. And I said, well, why can't I use a similar process? So I started bringing cameras out. But it was difficult at first because I was a poor student. And uh, I didn't, couldn't get access to cameras. But, of course, cameras have become more and more accessible. So I started carrying, eventually got a very old handy cam, started carrying that around everywhere and shooting footage. And then I eventually got frustrated because I was stuck on land. And what a lot of the men would speak about or what they would experience in terms of emotions and effect and embodied experience was happening in the water. So how does one do video research in the sea? And then, of course, the GoPro came out. GoPro camera is a small, robust, waterproof camera. And I said, hey, I can make use of this. And you could attach it to your surfboard. I could carry it in my mouth. I could strap it around my neck and take it in the water and shoot footage in the water. How did you carry, then, it, how did you carry it in your mouth? <laughs> um, I took, there's an arm which attaches it to a helmet and I wrapped that up in neoprene and uh, I detached it from the helmet and I just I tapped a sort of necklace to it and I just stuck it in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And allowed me to surf, keep my hands free 
and then I could fit, shoot footage behind them. I could shoot footage and then hold it in my hand and uh, scan the lineup. Uh, and basically I was getting a fuller picture of the dynamics, the social and embodied dynamics in the water of the lineups and uh, the, the relationships these men were having with themselves because part of my focus was on um, the homosocial settings, you know, the, where it was just the men hanging out with each other. Do you mind sharing some of the things that you were able to learn or some of the preliminary findings um, that you've discovered through using this approach? That despite their difficulty in speaking about emotion and their relationships with each other and their claims to having good control of those emotions, this is quite clearly not the case when it comes to masculinity. These men became emotional. Effects were clearly evident, be it fear, joy, anger, all the time without them even realising these were quite evident in the water and leaping from body to body. Also, that nothing is ever settled, right? Everything's always complex and shifting and moving, you know, and one moment the, the lineup or the setting or the field is quite classic and, and following traditional modes or tropes of masculinity, but the very next moment a particular wave appears and uh, everything gets shaken up as people renegotiate the lineup, the pecking order, um, people express anger, people get afraid. The whole dynamic is shifting and adapting all the time. And so there was this constant movement if we pet and the camera was picking up on the detail. Yeah, a lot of the details that I was missing. Mm-hmm. And I found that really seductive. The, the camera was doing a better job than I was. When you say that affect was jumping from body to body, do you mean that one person would get excited and then another person would suddenly get excited also? Or fear would also have that kind of contagious emotional effect? Yeah, that's exactly what I mean. Like, I mean, you're, you're shooting the lineup and then you, you can sort of... Particularly this, this happens, you know, it would happen with myself. I'd attach it to the front of the, ca- front of the surfboard and I'd have it shooting footage at myself, right? So I'd catch my facial expressions. And the faces where effect is very visible, right? Fear, anger, joy, etc. But at the same time, if, if, if I was scanning the lineup and something happened, be it an argument between two surfers, uh, two of the guys, uh, be it someone arrives and they haven't seen him for a long time because he's been travelling and you see all this backslapping and the handshakes and smiles spreading throughout the lineup, and then somebody would cry out, hey, welcome back sort of thing, and then he'd paddle over and they'd give each other a hug. You know, <laughs> these sorts of things are happening and the camera, because it, it, it uses a fisheye lens, which gathers quite a wide area would pick up on things and, I, and, and I'd be watching the footage back and it'd be on the p- periphery of the, of the screen and then I'd go, ah, oh, look what was going on over there. I was focusing on the wave coming at me, <laughs> uh, trying to avoid it. And over there, there was this very, very completely ignoring that, very comfortable in the setting and fully caught up in this emotional and effective bond. And then I could sort of address it and say, okay, there's something interesting going on here. Did you ever let 
other people use the camera, or were you the exclusive operator? Yeah, I, I eventually moved to go-alongs. Uh, this is sometimes I would paddle with the camera myself, and often I would attach it to surfboard or a helmet or whatever the case may be. But that was sort of limited. In the sea, it's really difficult to stay with the people you're doing research with um, because of currents, because of waves. Uh, they want to catch waves. They want to surf. They don't really want to do research with you. So I said, right, well, why don't you take the camera? And uh, this was always nerve-wracking for me because they're expensive. (laughs) And uh, I've lost a few because they say, oh, yeah, well, I had it in my mouth and I dropped it. And I'm like, oh, it's supposed to float. But anyway, so I'd give it to them and then they'd take it to parts of the the, the field that, like, I'm either too afraid to go (laughs) <laughs> because we'd be surfing quite dangerous reefs sometimes and there was certain parts of the reef that I was never going to surf. They take it out in conditions that I was too afraid to go out in. Mm-hmm. Um, they would be able to have the camera with them recording the sound and recording conversations with people who would never do so with me. They were more familiar with the field. They were familiar to the people. The people trusted them. And then they could have conversations and they allowed them to fill the, fo- the footage within that cohort. Whereas if I had just paddled up, this wasn't going to go and this wasn't going to happen, right? <laughs> they were just going to tell me to go away. Telling me to go away, I'm saying it like that, but of course they don't express it like that. Backtracking just a little bit, would it be fair to say with your research project that this is a case where the topic came before the method and you sought out the method that would help you understand your topic and answer the, your questions? Yeah, I would say the topic came before the method for me, but I knew you, it's funny when you come up with a research topic. It's sort of, you can't force it, right? It's, it's sort of got to come to you. And it, it took me a long time to sort of work out what actually was I really, really interested. I, I knew I was interested in terms of unpacking masculinity, but what exactly? And uh, it wasn't until my body sort of, shook me up a little bit while I was doing the research and I had a couple of negative experiences and some positive experiences that I said, okay, this emotion and effect is playing a role even in my research. So it's obviously playing a role in these, these guys' lives. And then, but then to sort of find a method that could articulate that, it's not an easy thing to do, you know. And as I said, you know, you, talking is only one way to do this yeah effect is immediate it's, mm-hmm. it's it's there's an immediacy once you start talking about it, it becomes emotion so effect slips away as soon as you try and grab it anyway and as soon as you try and articulate it say through other methods so the video footage enabled like for example if the if they had it attached to their surfboards during the go when they were using the camera and it captured them like i've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of expressions of their faces and this is effect working. Now, there's no way they could have spoken about that. They, they don't even know they're doing it half the time. It's only later when we watch back the footage and we can have a discussion about this that we can start to d- drill down into it. Were you already reading the literature on affect before you were having these experiences and then it started to connect? Or were you having these experiences and saying, well, this doesn't, this isn't being captured by what I've been reading, it's not being captured by just doing these interviews. And then you went out and found this literature that helped you understand it. I had no idea what affect was. (laughs) I thought everything was just emotion. 
but it wasn't until later that I really, that I, then I had to sort of learn my body. Every time I started trying to articulate what my body was experiencing, the sensations, words weren't quite capturing it. And it was then that I had to dig into the affect literature. And there was a reason why, because emotions are when culture come and and the social come rushing in to sort of explain the immediacy of what we're experiencing. Um, so I guess then the methods allowed me to get the, this particular method allowed me to sort of get at that. Let's switch a bit to the idea of sampling. How did you choose which groups of surfers to research? And then once you made that choice, did you have any difficulty with access or did you have to employ any particular strategies? It wasn't so difficult for me in many regards because I grew up surfing since I was a very, very young boy. So I was mixing with a wide variety of surfing communities. I was a local at a particular spot and that gave me unprecedented access to very close-knit group of men and to work from within that cohort. But when I tried to... When I expanded the research to other areas, other, other surfing locations and uh, local groups of surfers, I had to sort of go through gatekeepers. Fortunately, I knew people who could do that, but that's why I had to use those people. That I, I heavily relied on their introductions and for them to do gather the footage for me. So it was sort of a bit of a snowballing process but there, I did have sort of a little bit of privileged access because, you know, if, if you've never surfed before, how do you go out and gather surfing footage? It's quite in, in the locations that I was going to. It's almost impossible. But it also brings with it a bunch of blind spots. And uh, sometimes I found myself caught up in a process of saying, if I share this footage... What does that do to my own sense of belonging, uh, my future access to these groups? Because sometimes what's revealed isn't pretty, right? And the results of your research can be incredibly, sometimes difficult for the people who you're doing research with, but it cannot equally be difficult for you as a person because you will end up outside belonging if the research outcomes don't suit what they, those people think the research should be and what it should reveal. How forthcoming were you with the topic that you're researching? So uh, you're researching emotion, you're with this group of men who, as you said, are not the most open about the emotions that they, that they experience. Did you tell them what you were researching? Was there any resistance to it? Yeah, there was always resistance to the topic. Uh, I was always forthcoming. I always laid it out. Um, that's, I think that's important as a researcher that you're, you're very clear about what your agenda, what, what your research topic is, what your research questions are, so people have a clear awareness whether they're going to be a part of this or not. So, But they will reject it, right? They, they, people don't want to... Sh- like for example, some of the some of the guys, you'd gather this footage, and an ugly side would come out. Like people think surfing is all fun and play, but it gets aggro, it gets angry. It, um, people demonst- uh, show their fear, and they 
they're not comfortable or, or, or it would demonstrate just how on the periphery they think they they like to think that they belong but then when you watch back the footage you'll see that the others in the group keep them at a distance and they don't like to watch that back so this it's it's it's, it's difficult ground and it's you're, sometimes you're walking on eggshells did you share your findings after you wrote the paper were people interested in even reading the papers or yeah, well, this is interesting, right? Because you start shooting this footage, right? And then you try and publish or you try and write up your research. Academic writing is notoriously boring. I'm sorry, it is. <laughs> I'm going to say that straight up. Um, and there's a reason why people write in the way they do. I understand that. But how does one communicate effect and emotion like that if you're trying to suck it out of the writing? So I had to look for new modes of writing up such research, of representing the video footage, because I couldn't. It's not simply a case of showing the video foot, the, the, the footage that I gathered, right? Um, I had to sort of write up the research. Um, so I turned to what once again I went back to feminist feminism, and they use a mode of writing in Australia and Canada that they kicked off, which was called ficto critical writing. This is where you sort of it's a cross between the ethnographic data and then you bring sort of characters in that and settings in which are an amalgamation of the footage and data that you've collected to make a certain point, to get across the feel, to enable people to get a feel for what happened and what emerged and, uh, and then you can drill down into sort of some of the key, key ideas uh, and key findings, um, which come out of the research, but to communicate them, you've got to do so in a very, very different way. Sometimes people call it ethnographic fiction. Now I'm sort of trying to work on presenting it in quite a different way. I'm trying to work, I'm trying to say, right, other people present ethnographic films and footage, that's all well and good. How can I do this now? Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I'm not very experienced in this. I'm not a filmmaker. I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I'm not even really an ethnographic filmmaker. You know, I've never shown my footage anywhere. It's just got archives and archives and endless files of footage that just sort of sit there. So I've tended to write it up and, and I've done it for academic audiences, but I also try and take what I've learned and some of the findings and I try and say, right, how can I communicate this back to the very people who, who participated in the research? And so I try and, I try and write for surfing magazines through newspapers uh, and I've done sort of radio shows, etc. I try to present it back in a very non-academic way. I address the research to very, very different audiences and I use different modes to do so. Do you think that experience writing for more uh, popular outlets has affected your academic writing as well? Depends who you're speaking to. If you speak to editors of academic journals, I would say it doesn't improve it at all. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's improved it. It it, it forces me, I'm always, always thinking about, okay, here's a very difficult concept. How can I write this or communicate this in a way that it doesn't become convoluted jargon? I'm trying cut through the dross right just like if there's an honesty to that i think and while people say yes there's yes there are journals for difficult 
conceptual analysis and theoretical analysis, but that's not what I do. I'm trying to put those theories and concepts to work to see what happens. So I sort of see it as more of a creative process. One of the ways that I'm going to communicate my research now is I will be pulling together or releasing some of my um, footage, but I'm not going to edit it. This is one of the things that I don't want to do because one of the things is um, people edit out, edit a lot of ethnographic footage and they piece together a particular narrative, p- present a particular representation, and that's well and good. But I always, when you see footage, I always go, oh, what happened in between here and here? All the dull, mundane, boring stuff is taken out often. And this particularly happens with surfing and, and, and sports stuff. And I want all that left in, the bobbing up and down for an hour <laughs> and, and, and the sheer look of boredom on, 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 on um, some of the participants' faces, you know. I want all, So I'm going to release sort of two hours, a two-hour session, no editing whatsoever. So other researchers can sort of or other people can watch this and unpack it from their own particular subjective positions. I mean, it's not that I haven't, by shooting the footage, I haven't influenced it. I have. Mm-hmm. as has the camera. The camera's played its role as well, you know. The camera is as equally important to this as I am. But I'm just interested to see what, what that sort of communication of the data and research would, will, will produce. Yeah, it seems like a very honest way of revealing your data. I mean, a lot of ethnographers don't want to share their field notes, for example. So this seems like a real behind-the-scenes look at what's going on. Yeah, I'm seduced by that, right? I, there's no mystery here. Let's just lay all the cards on the table because it's only when we do that and then we have this sort of transdisciplinary and, and multi-subjective people interpreting this from different subjectivities that we can move into new territory, right, when new possibilities emerge, yeah? I don't want to tell you what is. I want to see what could happen with this. What can we do with it? What can we do with it? Let's, let's return to the data for a bit since... I'm curious, since you have all the data that an ethnographer would normally have, the field notes, the reflections, the conversations, but then you have these hours and hours of video footage. So what techniques do you employ or how do you decide what to use and, and, and what's useful for your articles? That's a good question. I'm a really sort of odd person. I can watch my footage for hours and hours and hours and sometimes it's just... You'll just notice something which I used, to, I used to focus on major events, right, something significant that happened during the footage. Gather and I go, right, what, what happened there? That really stands out. And this is when there's an intensity of affect and emotion uh, in regards to masculinity. And then I would try and unpack that and say, right, uh, what sort of discourses were involved here? Uh, what sort of social norms and rules were being broken or not? Uh, what was being policed or not. But increasingly I'm sort of paying attention to how the vast majority of time affect is muted. But I still haven't worked out how do I articulate that? (laughs) How do I make use of that? People want something to be able to stick to, but that's very slippery. So I guess that's why I've sort of moved to, I like that concept of the in-between, right? That in-betweenness. And, uh, trying to get across how it's always, always slipping. And these major events, all these events that stand out to us are not 
the only things going on. But I, to be perfectly honest with you, I haven't been worked out how to make, put that, that particular data, that sort of mundane, dull data, to significant use. When students are first learning about research methods, they often hear about this concept of generalizability. Was this something you considered? Um, it seems particularly tricky with your ideas of focusing on the mundane or the in-betweenness um, or even affect in general. So how did, you, how did you think about that? Yeah, I have always struggled with generalizability. <laughs> because I'm so focused on details and relationality and particularities and movement, how do I arrive at gen- generalizable findings? I mean, I sometimes will make certain claims, that, but what I'm trying to do is, is, is I'm always saying, but this is has to be contextual, context, context, context. But what I do try and do is undermine generalizability. So, for example, when it comes to masculinity, everyone and understanding it, particularly in, in masculinity studies, people often generalize, oh, so men are like this, or masculinity is like this. This, this is this type of masculinity, this is this type of masculinity. Well, you're re- remaining within a particular logic and a particular approach to understanding it. So what my data keeps revealing is it's super slippery. It, and, and, and my job, I find, is to say, right, Endless, endless, endless data is showing me just how slippery and uncertain and how adaptable and how shifting this all is and how contextual this all is. And each time you try and pin it down, I'm going to show you that you're bringing to bear a particular paradigm to try and fix it again. And what is that accomplishing? That keeps masculinity tied down and leads to blockages and stops creativity when it comes to doing masculinity otherwise. That's the problem from the outset, that, that sort of fixing it of trying to universalise something or generalise it too much. And so I, I, really, I really push towards the particularity of something and a constant, it's an ongoing process of undermining, I guess. No, that's, that's fascinating and really useful to think about the, the value of responding to and providing a corrective for other researchers who are overgeneralizing. And I, th- I think the next question that I was going to ask relates a lot to this. I'm just wondering if you could reflect about positionality and how that affects the research. Um, you've, you've touched on it a little bit already, but it seems really significant in the type of method that you're employing. It's always at the forefront when I'm writing or, or analyzing anything. You know, I'm a white, straight, male surfer who's had extraordinarily an extraordinary amount of privileges and this has come at the expense of many other people throughout my life and I always keep that in mind uh, and I'm always constantly trying to say to myself well how does this shape first of all what I pay attention to and then I try and catch myself out but it's not always easy to do so and then I try and be very careful about if I interpreting what others are doing so I always go back to others particularly from different or I have other people from different subjectivities try and pick up on my blind spots and say right you keep you're making this assumption this assumption this assumption and uh it's in that dialogue that I go okay now I've got to go back and unpack that assumption where did that assumption come from and then I go back and reflect on 
on that assumption, which becomes an issue in and of itself because through, if I'm making that assumption, sometimes there's a likelihood other men in the groups that I'm studying with or working with are making similar assumptions in their own lives um, and you can take that back to them and then have them discuss that assumption themselves and they can normally articulate where that assumption comes from better sometimes than I, I do. So, so it's, just, it's, a, it's a complicated negotiated process of working through that positionality and always being aware of it. This might be a bit of a difficult question, uh, but building off that interest and affect in our discussion of positionality, I'm wondering about the writing. Since it seems like with ethnographers, there's two models. And in one, they basically dis- disappear from the field when it's time to do the writing. It's all about describing what happened. Um, you don't really see the way they affect it. You don't see the way they're impacted by it. And for others, the ethnographer is front and center to the writing. Um, it's about them. They're the point of entry. So how do you balance those two inclinations and how do you choose which way to go? It is a difficult question, but it's a good question. And I'll answer it honestly. I don't know until I'm writing. Sometimes the only way you can explain something is to go back through your body and, and bring yourself back into the picture. You know, uh, sometimes then I'll, I'll drift out if, if, if I hit a certain point and I say, right, um, as you c- I'm drawing attention to, uh, we can see that uh, when it comes to surfer, wave, surfboard, environment and affect, we can see that there's an assemblage going on and our experience arises out, out of the emotional and affective s- sensing of that. Then I'll go out and sort of do a bit of theoretical take and position that, but then I'll come back in because I try and draw it back into experience to then to help them get come back into getting a feel for the field and the setting and what I'm trying to do here. So it's a, it's a case of trying to very carefully move out and in, out and in, out and in. But it's it's not easy to do. And sometimes um, I will write papers very, very differently. Some will take a very classic approach where, where I'm not present um, and others I'm clearly evident throughout the whole thing. To conclude, do you mind if we head back to the original undergraduate classroom that we first talked about and imagine you're selling this method to them? So what are the real strengths? Why would someone choose to use this approach? It's a hell of a lot of fun. You know, I, I really appreciate that because researchers just don't want to admit that the process can I mean, be it, enjoyable. It just is. I mean, I, I'll be honest. I love it. I absolutely love it. I go surfing. The camera has taught me an awful lot because it's, it's because of what it can gather, because of the way it changes the dynamics of the research process. Some people, it, and the way it will sort of draw people into the research process, right? People will see the camera, they'll come talk to me, say, what are you doing? We'll have a chat, and then it opens up a whole dialogue. So that's been a real buzz that comes out of it. Of course, it can do the opposite too, right? Like Because there's certain places in surfing which are supposed to stay off the grid, so it's also led to violence, right, with, with my cameras being smashed and things. So people actually smashed your camera. They didn't just ask you to not record? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've had my smart on, on land I'll use my smartphone sometimes to uh, record footage or sometimes I've been in places which are quite sensitive and my camera has been taken from me and never returned despite my pleading. So that's, that's been problematic. But generally speaking... There's just a real joy, and, and, and it sort of does open up lots. It's 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 real fun process to do, you know, and and you you get to participate in something. I like I'm researching something that I truly love, and 
this allows me to gather the footage in a way that sort of can help me convey that, but also get across to others, not just through words, you know. That's what I'm hoping it will eventually do. Well, thank you again for joining us today, Clifton. We really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. On behalf of me, Sarah Loggison, and my co-producer, Kyle Green, thank you so much for listening. And remember, please give Methods a chance. Thank you.